I'm pleased to introduce to you Dr. Ron C. Williams, Associate Professor of Management at the Coppin State University College of Business and the founding director of the CSU Center for Strategic Entrepreneurship. I am so excited to speak with him today about his 35-year career in higher education with deep community roots and national influence. Wearable Takeover Community, welcome Dr. Ronald C. Williams. All right, Dr. Ronald C. Williams has served in higher education for 35 years, spending the past 25 years as a faculty member in the Coppin State University College of Business and serving as interim dean from 2013 until 2017. In 2016, Dr. Williams established a formal relationship between CSU and Open Works Baltimore, a 34,000 square foot maker space. This groundbreaking relationship is the first of its kind in the nation and led to as a role of principal investigator in the 2019 turning makerspaces into greater places, an organizational assessment and economic impact study of open works. You can find that at www.greaterspacesandplaces.com. He further contributed to the understanding of makerspace value in 2020 as principal investigator in the case study of open works application of lean manufacturing principles during the initial months of the COVID-19 global pandemic, producing over 28,000 face shields in 56 days for over 100 clients. Immediately prior to the 2015 unrest in Baltimore, Dr. Williams coined the phrase entrepreneurship, I hope I got that right, Dr. Williams, in a 2017 Metropolitan Journal article entitled, Creating a University-Driven Entrepreneurial Ecosystem in West Baltimore, a Strategy for Rust Belt Revitalization. The concept describes a framework for improving the socioeconomic well-being of underrepresented communities and aligns with his current role as an academic advisor on joint research studies on manufacturing workforce development with the Century Foundation and the Urban Manufacturing Alliance. He also helped to develop the Coppin Certificate in Entrepreneurship and Innovation and Development of the Trust Climate Assessment Instrument and Relational Innovation Framework for Collaborative Economic Development Across Cultural and Geographic Divides. He is also the faculty advisor of award-winning student teams in local and national innovation competitions and the founding director of the Coppin State University Center for Strategic Entrepreneurship. Dr. Williams holds a PhD in management and organization from George Washington University with concentrations in organization behavior and the management of science, technology, and innovation. A master's degree in human resource development from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, and a bachelor's degree with majors in psychology, social science, and education from the University of Tampa in Tampa, Florida. He also serves on the AAAS HBCU Making and Innovation Advisory Board, the Open Works Board of Directors, and as president and chair of the Urban Manufacturing Alliance. Woo! I definitely have an expert here today. And Dr. Williams, when you and I first met, 
it was in Washington right before the pandemic. And I was serving as a speaker for a AAAS HBCU Making an Innovation Conference. And later I joined the board with you and I'm so honored to be with you. Why don't you tell our listeners about AAAS, the HBCU Making an Innovation uh, Conference and the efforts there for the, from the advisory board? Okay, thank you. And, and first of all, Lakeisha, I did not know you were going to read all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to let them know. I had to let them know. <laughs> no, but uh, the, the experience with the AAAS um, HBCU Maker Showcase uh, has been awesome. It was an opportunity for us at one point to take a, a team of, of students there uh, to participate uh, in the event, but it's it's a prime opportunity for HBCU students to showcase their projects and um, their their innovative efforts um, in a conference setting, which is which is great professional development experience and a way to uh, let the world see uh, just how innovative and creative our students are. I love it. I absolutely love it. And your students were quite impressive. And many of them go on to graduate school to pursue research careers. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, many of them go on to graduate school. And I'll, I'll say one of the benefits or one of the pleasures of having been at Coppin for 25 years, if I, I've been able to see the trajectory of some of their careers over time. So uh, it makes me feel like very much an elder. But uh, students that I had maybe two decades ago are just doing phenomenal uh, things um, in the marketplace. They are entrepreneurs, they are academics, they are corporate leaders, they are CEOs. Um, so yes, they, they go on to do great things and they come right from uh, the, the platform or the foundation of HBCU and experiences like the um, AAAS uh, HBCU Maker uh, Showcase. And, and now that we're talking about HBCUs, it was important that I read your entire bio because I need everyone to understand not only the depth, but the breadth of your impact and influence in Baltimore and even around the world. I know when you and I first met, you were explaining how um, you had presented some work or a paper to be approved at uh, an international conference and you were determining if you were going to go and speak or whatnot. And so with that being said, you are known as a thought leader. And so when we consider HBCUs, and for those of you that are listening that do not know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about historically Black colleges and universities. There is a lot of shine. There's a lot of attention on HBCUs right now. And considering you are one of the world's thought leaders, and you also happen to be a Black man, a Black thought leader, right? What does ideal? Black thought leadership look like compared to what we see today? And then if you can kind of help us understand how are HBCUs serving as the epicenter for the discovery of innovative ideas that's going to transform the world? I know that was a lot there and we could break it down so you can start wherever you want to. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for that. And I have to put it in context um, first. My academic experience prior to Coppin um, was all uh, traditionally private uh, white institutions. University of Tampa, Johns Hopkins, George Washington University, 
that was my higher ed experience, not only as a student, but also as a faculty person at Coppin. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, at, at, at Hopkins, back okay. when they were the School of Continuing Studies. Uh, I taught there for like six or seven years prior to um, going to Coppin. Coppin was a choice. Both of my parents are, are alums of HBCUs, um, Coppin and, the, and in particular being an urban HBCU, being in the heart of the city, a smaller HBCU, public HBCU, uh, aligned very closely with my desire to be active in the community and not being driven by the uh, by a tier one research institution experience and where I could really be uh, community centric, but also student focused and focus on teaching and connecting with people. So historically, uh, historically black colleges and universities have been that um, epicenter, uh, that the place that was the genesis for black thought leadership um, coming particularly out of segregation, out of the slavery experience, and really putting African-Americans on a trajectory into what became the black middle class. It would not have happened without uh, historically black colleges and universities. And um, whether they be, and they are not all the same. You have public, you have private, you have land grant, non-land grant, you have urban, you have rural. They're not all the same, don't always serve the same purpose. But what they do have in common is that um, we do, and, and I don't I say this by way of research, but also by way of experience. No one can um, surpass us in terms of value added education. Mm, and the value reason added I added education, I, ha- I had to pause yes. there, folks. Value added education. So explain that for us. The Brookings Institute uh, did a, an extensive report in 2015 that identified Coppin and it may have been Bowie as number one in the state of Maryland in terms of value added education. That means that we take we engage students that may not have opportunities otherwise and also may come with some des- deficits because of in, uh, inequity in terms of resources, mm-hmm. not because of their ability, but access to resources. They may come with certain deficits. We, we, we do it better than anyone else in terms of taking those students and, and taking them to a place where they can compete and can um, succeed on a high level in the marketplace. We do that. I'll put us up against anyone. Uh, in terms of our ability to do that. So HBCUs have always been the the epicenter of, um, I'll say, value-added educa- added education. We've often exceeded others. In terms of value-added education, we should own that because even now, from a national security standpoint, we need all hands on deck. We can't yes. stand to leave anybody behind. And regardless of what marginalized community you are coming from, whether it's inner city or whether it's in uh, rural Appalachia, uh, HBCUs uh, really do it better than most in terms of taking those students to a place where they can compete. I love it. Now, let me tell you, I grew up watching a different world and I just knew I was going to an HBCU. Okay, Ohio State, I do love you, okay? But (laughs) I had some scholarships to some HBCUs. However, I had a full scholarship to the Ohio State University. But had it not been for that scholarship, 
I would have been at an HBCU. And so that's why I'm so honored to be able to pay homage and to assist other students uh, at HBCUs through some of your platforms, such as the Economic Inclusion Conference. And I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about what is that platform and why is that so impactful when we talk about where Coppin State University is located in Baltimore? Mm-hmm. Well, Coppin State University, 2500 West North Avenue is right in the heart of the city. Um, anybody who, if you've ever, if you know anything about Baltimore and um, the entrepreneurial ecosystem and how development has happened over the course of decades, uh, West Baltimore is is what is known as the donut hole. It means that everything around us has developed, but for years uh, there's been underdevelopment in West Baltimore. That's exactly where uh, Coppin State is located. Um, so the the Economic Inclusion Conference we had our first conference in uh, 2016, um, not long after uh, the unrest happened in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And we just thought it was important uh, for Coppin as an institution to be that institution in the heart of what is known uh, as um, an area that has been, there's been underinvestment made over decades to be that academic innovation center that brought the corporate community, the academic community, the community around us, the, the all sectors together um, to have a conversation about how we make opportunities more broadly available. <clears throat> Nothing should happen in terms of development, innovation, making economic opportunities uh, available broadly uh, without coming through Coppin. We are the academic center in West Baltimore. So we should lead that conversation. Um, and that's what we seek to do with the conference. Absolutely. And folks, if you missed the Economic Inclusion Conference, uh, and we're recording this in 2022. Uh, it just happened, I believe, a week or two ago. Everything's happening so quickly. But if you missed it, you definitely want to make sure that you put this on your radar. Make sure that you're following Dr. Williams on LinkedIn so that you can be the first one to attend. And I was incredibly honored to be able to share this year. And Dr. Williams, he gave me he gave me a big old slot, y'all. <laughs> he gave me a slot after the the Bishop Walter. Be Bishop Walters that time is right. So <laughs> I was talking about overcoming barriers in tech for women, but I, I say that jokingly, but I, I really mean it with with emphasis. The 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 standard, the quality of speakers and presenters that were there, everyone from Tedco to some of the Baltimore tech ecosystem. And I don't know if our listeners know or or if you know this, Dr. Williams, but I actually started the wearable tech journey in Baltimore as someone that Baltimore didn't really even know uh, because of the murder of Freddie Gray. And at the time I was looking at, okay, there's some significant history here in Baltimore related to fashion. At that time, tech was not big in Baltimore. It actually just started to grow up with the whole tech ecosystem, which wearable tech ventures was a part of. So for a very long time, I was out there as a single person beating a drum, (laughs) talking about, um, innovation and tech and people are like, what is she talking about? And so I'm so excited that you are building this, uh, these series of programs and bringing thought leaders all together 
and and even making a new path in the in the way of maker. So you're on a board, you're doing some things in Baltimore. You were instrumental during the pandemic, making sure that people had uh, their PPE. Would you tell our listeners what exactly is a maker and what are the opportunities there for makers? Well, you know, uh, the whole maker movement is something that I stumbled into probably around the same time uh, that we launched the conference around 2016. And um, someone said to me, you need to connect with this group down the street, Open Works. And so um, uh, we did that. But, you know, to, to simplify it and what it what really dawned on me is, um, you know, it's going to sound redundant and like an oversimplification, but makers make things, and mm-hmm. they are they they are the MacGyvers of the of the economy in the sense that they take things that are nothing and they turn them into something, and sometimes it becomes entrepreneurial an entrepreneurial venture, but. They are just the creators. They are the hackers. They are the traditional tradespeople who come together in a space mm-hmm. and um, that space becomes a community and they become they uh, become an innovative community, an innovation centric community. Uh, so that's what the maker movement is. You know, there have been communities and 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 not only the African-American communities, but other communities that have been com- set makers historically out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, but now uh, it has been identified is becoming and has been identified as an economic driver. In fact, in this last session in the Maryland General Assembly, uh, not only, well, let me back up. Not only was Coppin the first HBCU in the country to have a relationship, a formal relationship nice. with a community embedded makerspace, um, but the, the, the study that we did uh, of that particular makerspace, which showed that that makerspace put eight million, over $8 million on the bottom line of the city every year what? and over $9 million on the bottom line of the state every year in Maryland. That, that report that you referenced. Now, that report was used to help make the case for the legislation that was just passed in Maryland. So Maryland is now the first state in the country to um, identify um, the makerspace, uh, maker move, the maker movement as a potential economic driver that leads that uh, will lead to economic growth in the in the state. So there's an investment of public dollars that's coming in through TEDCO. Um, it's called the Maker uh, Pilot Initiative project that will expand makerspaces across the state of Maryland, not only in Baltimore, but also in some of the rural areas as economic drivers, partially because of what our report showed in terms of economic impact. Okay, so I got to break this down for our listeners. So if someone were to come to you and say, what have you done for me lately? You have receipts, Dr. Williams. You said not only are we um, value added as we are attracting and pouring into students and teaching them, but we're allowing them uh, or providing them with tools and resources so that they can add economic value, not only to the university, not only to the city, 
but to the state and to the sound of eight to nine million. Is that what you said, sir? Yes, nine million, over nine million on the bottom line of the state every year and over eight million on the bottom line of the city every year. And these were pre-pandemic numbers, but uh, that particular space, which is a leader in the country, and I'm not sure that that Baltimore and Maryland realized what a gem they have mm-hmm. uh, in the open work space, but um, uh, that space is is leading the country in terms of diversity and inclusion, in terms of economic impact locally, but also on the state level. So there are a lot of eyes on. Maryland and Baltimore in terms of economic impact, and they're looking to see how we do it. I love it. Okay, so for those of you that may have been making things at home, or perhaps you might have been using some of those websites where you can create your own items and you can place them for sale, this is what we're talking about. In these particular spaces, they have access to equipment. And they have instructors. And so even 3D printing machines, I'm, I'm assuming they're right, Dr. Yes. Williamson, in the maker spaces, which is a part of wearable technology. So makers, so wearable tech and makers, we love one another, right? <laughs> As Dr. Williams already mentioned, when we're given nothing, we can make something. And so he has receipts. He's talking about how during the pandemic, when nobody could buy PPE, masks, or whatnot, they were out there producing them. And so tying it back to Coppin State University, which is absolutely wonderful. So here's a small plug, folks. I'm not even going to break this down to even do a commercial because this is what a hacker looks like. You could get that T-shirt on our website, but then you could also join us and hopefully some of our folks from Coppin State University as we engage in the virtual hackathon this July. But anyway, so what are some funding opportunities um, and then what are some skill sets that one must have to consider being a maker? Well, I think funding opportunities are are beginning to emerge and are uh, picking up momentum. As maker spaces are recognized as uh, part of, of the economic engines that that municipalities need and and that states need, money will follow. Mm -hmm. Um, Not only on the local level, it's just like, you know, the the ARPA money that that the city received. Uh, And um, on the state level and the national level, if you look at some of the national legislation that's pending now, um, two things are mentioned, manufacturing and HBCUs Mm and just about every line. So uh, it, there's over the next decade, I would say, it's regardless of what administration is in office, I think that there will be an avalanche of funding because the innovation is needed. Small scale local manufacturing is needed. The reshoring of manufacturing nationally is a necessity. So with all of that happening, you have the perfect storm. So there will be public dollars that will follow over the next decade or two. Um, and also um, some private private uh, funding opportunities uh, will be available because you, when you look at it from every angle, not only the, the products that are being produced, but also um, the workforce issues that we have. Mm. Um, there will be funding coming from that direction. So if, if you are 
looking to enter the, uh, the, the small scale manufacturing sector, or um, if you're looking to hire, uh, I think there will be funding support for all of those kinds of activities because there are not enough workers to fill the gaps in terms of skills and talent that is needed to reshore manufacturing. There's a need. What, what makerspaces have, have demonstrated is the ability to create community, a sense of a space where there's a sense of belonging and affiliation and people get together. And when people get together in a community setting, usually they are more productive and able to be more innovative if the sense of community is built. All of that is happening and, and investment is starting to follow that. I love it. So basically what you're saying from this manufacturing perspective, there's a strong possibility that in the future, we do not have to go overseas to get things done. Is that what you're saying? That is exactly what I'm saying. Um, and because, again, it's it, it, it has become a national security risk. If you cannot, we see what's happening with the supply chain now as it broke um, and and the consequences of the pandemic and the, 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 the lingering consequences of a broken supply chain and the inflation that is following because you can't I get items. So, they, you know, it's a supply and demand yep. uh, when the supplies is, 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 is um, low, the, the prices go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see what's happening. So reshoring is an absolute must. So for the next couple of decades, at least, there's going to be a tremendous emphasis on reshoring manufacturing and bringing those jobs back to the U.S. Now, they won't look like um, the industrial jobs of the old, but um, advanced manufacturing will be uh, very much in full swing. You're doing wearable tech. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be other sectors that are the those that involve robotics, those that, and when I say that, I don't say it to to make it sound um, out of reach for people, because all of this activity will have to be pushed down to the community level in order to fill the gaps that are necessary. Uh, positions like uh, citizen data scientists and people say, "What is that?" You know, that's when. You may not necessarily go get a four-year degree, but you can get into data science by just virtue of getting certain exposure to certain certifications. And the best skill that you can have, the greatest skill, is the, the, the learning competence. If you are a skilled learner, you can be active in the emerging um, manufacturing space, emerging maker space the emerging uh, technology space. Just be able to learn, be good at learning. I love it. And there's going to be many of opportunities that are decentralized, if I could use that term, for learning. And I believe last year I did a talk with uh, the Black uh, Data Scientists Organization, and maybe we'll have to connect them with you as well, Dr. Williams. Um, But they are amazing and they had a hackathon. And so it's going to be wonderful when we all come together. So for folks that are out there listening, if you already had a career path in mind, or perhaps you were thinking about transitioning, I want you to strongly consider making a visit to a makerspace, um, uh, reaching out to Dr. Williams, or just following him to see what he's posting about various events, and make sure that you attend those. Because I think it's important 
that we have increased representation in the makerspace. And so from your perspective, Dr. Williams, what does the demographics look like from makers or do you feel that Coppin is helping to uh, make sure that there is proper representation in the makerspace? Yeah. Historically, uh, makerspaces have not been that diverse. And um, uh, that is a fact. And I do believe that we are making a difference, but we are barely scratching the surface. Hmm. When you now, I, I, I mentioned OpenWorks as a leader nationally in terms of uh, diversity and inclusion from the staff to the board to the membership is very diverse. That did not happen because of where it's located, because there are institutions, organizations that are in Baltimore that are not diverse. You have to be intentional about mm-hmm. being inclusive. Yeah. Um, and that's what we're advocating in the makerspace movement is that you be intentional about being inclusive. Um, now, if you are in an area where it, there's there's not much racial diversity in the area, there are other um, determinants for uh, being inclusive other than just race. It may be um, uh, physically able versus people that are not physically able. It Mm -hmm. may be not necessarily African-American. It may be Native American. It may be, but whatever the other is in your community, you have to be intentional about being inclusive because it's natural for humans to self-categorize and self-segregate. That's not a bad thing. But we have to be mindful about being inclusive of what uh, what what that other is. Um, um, the, what did the sociologists call oh, in group, out group? We have to be intentional about uh, including the out group, whatever that out group is. I love it. So, folks, make sure you're inviting the out group, and I think that's important. Represent- representation is incredibly essential. And especially when we talk about manufacturing and I got to tell a story here. I talk about this in my book, Rejection to Reward, how I actually curated the Maryland's first wearable tech fashion show at Light City. And a couple of years after I curated that, um, and this was after I had launched the whole wearable tech expo with my own money, there was a manufacturing organization in the state of Maryland that was funded by state funds and other things like that. They copied my idea. And put on a show in Baltimore and said it was the first. And Dr. Williams, I actually went to the organization that funded them. And I went to the leadership of that manufacturing organization and said, how dare you? Because if you can Google, you will find my name. And so when we're talking about representation in manufacturing, um, I've already told my story. But from your perspective, why is that important? Also from an IP perspective, because we know Baltimore is the home of Henrietta Lacks. And I always tell people we are not trying to repeat that story when it comes to IP tech or makership, right? So why why is representation important and what can we do to help drive uh, more inclusivity as it relates to manufacturing? Well, I'm so glad that you, you, you brought that up. Um, and I'll get to the IP, the intellectual property question, because that's a that's on that's an education issue on our side. Uh, we need to educate ourselves about that and make sure we are protected, properly protected. 
Um, but you know, historically, while there had African Americans in particular, as we migrated from the South, we found jobs in manufacturing sectors in the industrial uh, areas, but it was not equitable. Exactly. And it was not inclusive, but certainly as you moved up the up the decision up the chain, um, and 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 many of us were able to uh, move our families into the middle class and educate our children because of those industrial jobs. So we have to acknowledge that. But at the same time, uh, we know that uh, that sector is not as inclusive as as it could be, especially as you may move into the decision-making ranks. So at Coppin, we're very focused on preparing leaders and owners in that sector. That's that's the trajectory we want them on. But you have to work at both ends. We have to work at our community end Mm -hmm. uh, to expose our community to manufacturing and educate our community about what manufacturing is today. Yes. It's not the old dirty, dusty job that you would envision. So that needs to happen. What may be a little bit uh, more tricky or trickier than the than even that is to for to help the manufacturing sector, the decision makers who exist uh, today uh, in most cases that um, we can help you. We can help you shift the culture that will be more inclusive and help all of us be more profitable. Yes. Keyword, profitable. Profitable. See, um, we don't, those who I would say dominate in decision-making positions today in manufacturing, um, don't necessarily know how to 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 navigate those waters. Um, it's bringing people who are may not who may have be underrepresented now in, but bringing them in in a way that you're bringing them into emotionally and psychologically safe space. Wow! You can't bring me into a sector and then emotionally and psychologically beat me up because I don't feel like I belong. Wait a minute, I, wait a minute, wait a minute, Dr. Williams. I'm glad you said that. Uh, I had a recent discussion with some advisors and I told them that it, it is so important as we are building these innovation ecosystems that we inform our people. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, when I'm saying our people, I'm referring to those that are historically underrepresented and under-resourced. You belong here. We are fighting. We are working every day. And so we're not wasting our time doing these shows and putting on these programs. You belong here. So even if it's something that you don't even understand and you're listening to these podcast episodes to catch up, please, please hear me. You belong here. And we are fighting to make sure you have what you need so that not only you can be present, but so that you can thrive. Continue, Dr. Williams. So, so it, it, it's important for us to help those who are in decision-making positions in manufacturing now understand the value of bringing in others for their economic 
positive economic mobility, those we're bringing in, but also so that the that the the corporation, the entity, the organization can be more profitable, and also creating that culture inside that uh, creates a a a community that can be productive and innovative. Um, I'm, I grew up in, in, in coal mining territory. And uh, one thing I knew, because there was a large African-American population in the county that I grew up in, um, when those men went underground, um, different races, black, white, different nationalities and so forth, when they went underground, it le- everything became level because their primary um, desire was to come out alive. So a lot of the things that separated them above ground disappeared because they had to work together Mm -hmm. for a common goal to come out alive. So they had to produce, they had to work together, and it, it created relationships below ground that they couldn't even have often above ground. Mm-hmm. Um, when you bring people into collaborative relationships, into a community where they are being, um, they have a common goal and they're working side by side, um, that's what I call relational innovation. Some things melt away. And once people taste that, and once they know that that exists, the only way you can change culture is give people new experiences. Yeah. And once you give them that experience of collaborative productivity and innovation, they you, can, you can't erase it. Mm-hmm. Some people get to try to deny it, but you cannot erase that experience. We have to move in that direction. So that's the drum that I'm beating now. Um, let's, let's develop some relational competencies and understand what that means in terms of productivity and profitability. And let's begin to shift the culture. Let's create pathways where uh, people who are underrepresented and under-resourced can come in and um, be safe psychologically. Yes. We, 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 and what that means. Um, so that's, that's, that's the mission that I'm on now. I, I love it. I love it. And so I, before we get to our last question, I got to touch on something else because you were doing something with the Center for Strategic Relational Innovation. Can you tell our listeners what that is and what can we expect from the center in the future? Okay. The the yeah, the center this the Center for Strategic Entrepreneurship and a personal research interest of mine is around what I call relational innovation. And that's what I was just referring to because um learning is the greatest skill that we can have in the 21st century. Absolutely. There's a there's there has been a lot of attention in terms of learning on cognitive the cognitive domain of learning and the psychomotor domain of learning. We know a lot, we have a lot of tools, but we can't get along. Mm. So we now must focus on the affective domain of learning. There's a reason we remember our favorite teacher. It was because of the relationship. Yes. Learning happens when the relationship is intact. So 
Follow the follow the breadcrumbs. We improve relationships. We learn more effectively, and we have the greater the great the skill that is in greatest demand. We 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 almost have a hyper focus on STEM, mm-hmm. and we should focus on STEM, but we better become relationally competent. Yes, there are sev- there are several relational pillars that we have to focus on, um, like trust, communication, empathy, others. But um, trust is the load bearing pillar. So that's the trust framework that we're working on to help um, to help organizations and to help develop trust profiles. So we'll have a baseline in regard to trust, because once that trust is lost, everything else falls apart. So within trust, we talk about um, two two factors, one being transparency and the other being cultural competence, composition, cultural composition. Uh, is your is your company or your space or whatever are you heterogeneous or homogeneous in terms of your your makeup? What are the others, and how transparent are you with information? Because transparency makes you more vulnerable, and the willingness to be vulnerable, <coughs> excuse me, is the definition of trust. So, I love it, Doctor Wazes. You have dropped so many gems in this short amount of time. And I'm sure people are listening and saying, I want to take his class. I want to be a part of his center. (laughs) And so before we get into how they can uh, stay engaged with you, how they can uh, learn from your feet, what would you like your legacy to be? Um, A a learner and, and a teacher. And, well, let me put it this way: a learner and a facilitator of learning. Mm-hmm. That 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 would be my 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 legacy. Um, I've always been very active in the faith community. You mentioned Bishop Thomas, yeah. and um, for for me, uh, teaching and preaching are the two most noble endeavors in the world. Mm-hmm. So um, that that is it. If people say he was a great teacher, a great facilitator of learning, and and he was a lifelong learner himself, that's it. I mean, in addition to, of course, you know, father, husband, all of that kind of stuff, because I'm learning at that too. I've been married to the same person for 41 years. I'm still Woo! learning. I love it. All right, so we got a good teacher right here, folks. So you can go to him for a lot of things, mentor, or whatever. Uh, I think you're going to have to start dropping something in his cash app, though. (laughs) You can learn a lot from this man, this model, the mentor, the muggle in Baltimore City, the professor at the Coppin State University, Dr. Williams. I'm I'm just so honored to have you in my space. I'm honored to work with you, not only from a city level, but from a national level to help launch these initiatives. And folks, for those of you that are listening, you might be saying, what's my first step? How do I get into this? Well, we're going to ask Dr. Williams for some contact information. But let me tell you this. Go online right now. Go to wearabletechventures.org and register for the virtual hackathon. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to episode two. But just follow directions. Go to the website right now and register. So that way we can 
involve you in some of this training, some of these opportunities right from your home. Okay. So make sure you register for that today. It is free. All right. And so Dr. Williams, what are some uh, ways that people can follow you, engage with you? Uh, go ahead and share that with our audience. Yes. Um, feel free to contact me on LinkedIn, uh, Dr. Ronald C. Williams, uh, Twitter, uh, Dr. Ron Williams, at Dr. Ron Williams, uh, Facebook, any of those. I respond. You send me a LinkedIn message, I respond. Um, you know, I, I, I love connecting with people and, and sharing what I know and learning what they have to share with me. So feel free to reach out on me, LinkedIn, Twitter, any of those platforms. Our, our copy in my email is rwilliams, rwilliams at coppin, C-O-P-P-I-N dot E-D-U. Send me an email message. Uh, go to the Coppin website. Uh, call Coppin and ask for me by name. <laughs> any, any of those will work. A living legend, folks. A living legend. Let's give it up for Dr. Williams. Ooh, I need to have like the audience uh, audio here. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for a few announcements.